When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. There is so much to talk about today. We're going to start by talking about the Neil Young versus Joe Rogan versus Spotify situation. Now it's not just Neil Young and then Joni Mitchell pulling their music from Spotify. India Ari has followed in their footsteps. She's concerned about what she sees as Joe Rogan's racially charged language, as well as unsatisfied with Spotify's payouts to artists. And Crosby, Stills, and Nash have also joined the boycott. After we play my conversation with Andy Green, we're going to talk about the weird CD revival with Rob Sheffield and Britney Spanos. Do CDs really deserve to come back? I don't really think so, but Rob and Britney do. But let's get straight to my conversation with Andy Green. So much has happened so quickly between Neil Young, Spotify, and Joe Rogan. But to recap, Joe Rogan, very popular podcaster on Spotify, kind of their marquee name. He has a big contract with them to exclusively host his podcast. He had a bunch of episodes where he talks about the COVID-19 vaccines. I think it's fair to say that he is at least edging towards the territory of becoming a skeptic of the COVID-19 vaccines. I think that's probably an understatement. I think many of his fans would say he's just someone who asks questions, but in this particular case, it does appear that he's beginning at least to adopt a definite point of view. And he's had some guests who were outliers from the scientific consensus, and it's prompted many to describe him as propagating misinformation on the show. There were some doctors and other professionals who signed a petition to Spotify, noting that he was propagating misinformation. Rolling Stone broke that news. And then Neil Young became aware of this and made a dramatic move. He put out a statement on his website that said, Spotify, you can have me or Joe Rogan. You can't have both because of what he saw as vaccine misinformation information. It should be noted that Neil Young is someone who had polio. He had polio before there was a vaccine for polio, and I'm sure that affected his thinking, as a lot of people pointed out. Now, when Neil Young made this statement, what happened was, first, uh, a lot of people mocked him for this. Right, Andy? Describe the most negative reaction you saw early on, because there was a lot of that. A lot of reaction I saw was extremely negative. A lot of right-wingers we're like, what happened to the hippie notion of challenging authority? It's like, you've sold out, Neil. This is so un so anti-hippie. Now you're establishment. That was a big reaction. And some people said, I think this is a better critique, that Neil is against GMOs. And those and his, and his argument is pretty anti-science, I would argue. Uh, and wrong, I would argue. So they threw that at him. But it was largely that... He was trying to censor Joe Rogan, you know, that he was against the First Amendment. He was trying to silence his speech. And that was the argument that was often thrown out. Yes. And I think there was another big strain in the critiques, which is, LOL, Neil Young, you are old and irrelevant. It was a large strain in in the critiques. And it just shows how politically driven all these things have become. All of a sudden, Neil Young, who was quite a, a mainstream thing to like among certain generations, suddenly among people who obviously were of the age and taste to like Neil Young, suddenly were pretending that no one likes Neil Young and no right. one ever liked Neil Young. Right. But I think to lots of people, that they haven't thought much about Neil Young in the past 30 years. He sort of became like a cult artist in a way. And he hasn't had a real mainstream moment since he like played with Pearl Jam at the VMAs in 93 or something. He's been kind of off the grid. He's been working constantly, touring all the time. 
but just kind of playing to his fans. So to normies out there that don't really pay much attention, they presume that he was dead or something or just a complete relic of the past and a joke. So to see him again, I think, was kind of shocking for some people. Yeah, ironically, I mean, this is something we discussed that I feel that Neil had paid insufficient attention to the duties of sort of legacy building, image building, and doing the kind of documentaries and other things that would have kept him in the public eye, but also made sure that younger people knew about exactly what he did and what he stood for. And it turned out all of that was was almost wiped away by this single thing he did that suddenly made him the most relevant artist on, on earth for a week or so. It, it's the most press he's gotten I can't even remember the last time that Neil Young, he's been in the news this much. I mean, God, it might be like the 70s or something when this much conversation was around Neil Young. And it's just because he had the audacity and the balls to stand up to Joe Rogan, to stand up to Spotify, to be the first person to say, look, I am out of here if this stuff continues. I he think was, the other thing I saw, and I, I tweeted about this, was the the right wing, right wing and also people who are vaccine skeptics and also Joe Rogan fans, I won't pigeonhole it just as right wing people, but there was this thing of like, you foolish old man, how dare you even imagine that they would choose you over Joe Rogan. And to me, that was a fundamental misunderstanding of when someone takes a a stand based on principle and never, of course, even Neil as, you know, what, however in, in touch or out of touch with reality he may be, I'm sure he never for one second expected Spotify to literally be like, oh, Mr. Young, of course we choose you. We're banishing our biggest star, Joe Rogan. No, it was a principled stand. And the fact that people who literally didn't seem to understand the concept was incredible. Yeah, I think Neil was hoping to start a movement. He didn't think that he alone was going to get Rogan off Spotify. But he was just saying, look, I don't want my music on the same platform that's spreading misinformation about the vaccine. And that's not censorship. That's not censorship in the least. It's just saying that, that, that I don't want to be a part of the same thing as this. So I'm taking my stuff away. And if that's a violation of the First Amendment, I don't know what is. I mean, that's just crazy. But what happened yes, was so it, it was unclear at first if it would lead to anything. Then Joni Mitchell, whose name carries a different clout than people might understand, joined the crusade. His old friend Joni Mitchell, Joni, fellow Canadian, she stopped by the Tonight's the Night session and, and jammed with Crazy Horse. She's a long-standing pal. Joni joined the cause, and Joni is someone who carries weight with young people. It's a different kind of thing, honestly. Yeah, it was was a real get, because Joni has a sort of coolness that Neil has lacked for a long time, and her statement was pretty powerful. And then David Crosby tweeted, he was like, look, I wish I had the power to take my stuff off of Spotify. I sold my publishing, it's out of my hands. And I think a lot of his of peers of Neil are in the same position. That if they wanted to do this, they couldn't do it. And even Neil, who sold half of the rights to his publishing, he had to get permission from the people who bought his publishing and from the label. And that's pretty tough. He pulled it off because he's Neil and he won't take no for an answer. But I think lots of other people who may want to do this are realizing that they can't do it. And, you know... We should mention Nils Lofgren may not carry commercial clout, but it was, I thought, really sweet and admirable that he jumped on board and said he was doing it in solidarity with Neil. I was kind of touched by that. But then what happened, despite all the kind of mockery of 
these quote unquote old quote unquote irrelevant artists. That was all it took for Spotify to announce that they're, they're actually putting basically markers on the controversial episodes. They're introducing them by explaining that they're outside of the scientific consensus. And Joe Rogan himself in a mildly bizarre Instagram video basically said he was fine with it and basically kind of a little bit seemed to backtrack. He was suddenly emphasizing again that he's just asking questions. He was saying that he needs to do more with getting people who are less controversial right after the people who are very controversial. It seemed to me like there was a little bit of blinking on the part of both Spotify and, and Joe Rogan, which is, is pretty interesting considering that from two artists over 70 years old, much derided for these stances, it seems like they effected some change here. It was smart of Rogan to seem contrite to not apologize, but to admit maybe he could have handled things a bit differently. And it shows that Neil, he really brought about a change. And I think perhaps Rogan in the future, before bringing on some quack doctor to say crazy shit, is going to think twice. He's going to think to himself, is it worth it to rile it, everybody up to give a platform to this person? And he might stop himself. And that's an accomplishment. And he praised Neil Young. He said that he was a big fan of Neil's, that he worked security at a show he played at the Great Woods Amphitheater in 1986. He said that he liked Joni Mitchell, and he loves her song, Chucky's in Love. But he was thinking, of course, say, about Ricky Lee Jones. So he was a bit off there. But it is funny that for all the Rogan fans who were saying that, like, no one's heard of Neil Young, no one likes Neil Young. And then for Rogan himself to be like, I've always loved Neil Young. It's just an <laughs> yeah. interesting kind of reality check there. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. And of course, as you know well, since you once interviewed him about this, a major, major Neil Young fan is Donald Trump himself. A huge fan. Yeah, it's a really weird thing. But I saw Neil a ton in concert in the city in the past 20 years. And in the mid-aughts, I saw Trump there three different times. I'd go to the show and about five minutes before showtime, I'd see Trump walk down the aisle and sit in the, and sit in the front row. I sort of couldn't believe it. So I, I called him up at Trump Tower back in 08, and we talked about it. And so it's sort of weird that these people love Neil Young. Trump and Neil Young vo both vocally pro-vaccine. They have so much in common. But yes. it's definitely been interesting to watch. I think, if anything, I think that Spotify moved because it also, there are trending topics about quitting Spotify. That's not what you want if you're, if you're a big company. And on top of that, it was starting to raise people's concerns about artist payouts and that kind of thing. It suddenly, it, it suddenly, people's eyes suddenly yeah. were on them. And I, I don't think that that's what you want if you're them. No, it was a much brighter spotlight than they've had in a long time. 
on the less than great aspects of, the, of their business model. And it happened to coincide. It was the same month or the same week, really, that the stock market was dipping down for most everybody. Right. So their and, stock was going way down, too. Was, yeah, but, but let's be clear. That was of course. really badly misreported by a lot of the press. No, it was just happened to be a bad week for the entire market. The entire stock market and so was crashing. To, and, to, were, and, and people were yeah. like, you know, Spotify crashes in wake of Neil Young comments. Like, talk about yeah. – that's the ultimate – I would teach that in journalism school as a thing about causation and causality. Like, Despite all of that, I'm sure Spotify was having a rough week. Yeah. And they had a lot of incentive to just try and put out this fire, try and give artists a reason to not follow Neil. Because, you know, it's often been said that they can withstand Neil if they lost Adele or something. You know, if a huge artist quit, it might start a snowball effect. I doubt it. There's so much money at stake and the labels are invested in Spotify. But I think they wanted this to just stop. I think there's something something heartening about just seeing that you know, Joni Mitchell, Neil Young, I mean, obviously Neil is hardly a stereotypical hippie. He He's that weird guy who's sort of a hippie and a hippie puncher. When it comes to Crosby, Stills, and Nash, he has a weird relationship to that whole thing. But let's face it, he is an old hippie. And Joni Mitchell, and to see that sort of, that boomer hippie idealism actually yield something positive here in 2022, I, I find a, a bit of a heartwarming narrative. Yeah, because their story started together in 1965. It's been woven in this weird fabric for all of these decades. And this is sort of a great last chapter that they worked together in their old age to kind of take down Spotify in a weird way. You know, I mean, they didn't take it down, but they, they caused down. some real download change. Us, download and subscribe to us on, on Spotify. Yeah, no. I, I use Spotify still, you know, I'm just saying that they brought about real change. And I don't think anybody thought that the two of them that were working together, that they could make this much news and cause this much of a wave. And that'd be hard to imagine that if you told me that like 10 days ago, but it happened. Right. And without one young artist coming aboard, it, it didn't matter. The last gasp of, of boomer political power <laughs> turns out to be this. This is the, the last chapter in, in that history book. And and look, for, for Neil, listen, Neil has taken some bizarre stances over the years. He has gone down rabbit holes that were not fruitful ones, if you'll forgive the, the totally mixed metaphor. The thing is, when you speak out and become a public figure again, the first thing they do, especially now, is find the worst thing you ever said. And they found the worst thing you ever said, which is something absolutely horrible yeah. about AIDS in, in, the, in the 80s. I think what people should understand without ever excusing it, a horrible thing he said is, is he was going through something truly agonizing in his personal life. His son was disabled and they were doing a 15 hour a day experimental program with him that was sapping all of his energy and and all of his time and, and, and wreaking havoc with his emotions. And, and he said that from that state, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, it's extremely out of character. It was one horrible sentence in a bad interview. There's no excuse for it, but it was very out of character. If you want a real view of his politics in the 80s, you should listen to Rocking in the Free World, where he takes on George H.W. Bush and the Republicans with real venom. And I, I, always, and I think that's I, more consistent with absolutely. him. Absolutely. And I always thought that his his doing the title track for the movie Philadelphia was an unspoken apology for all that. And he donated yeah. all the money from that to AIDS charities. And I, I think, in fact, I don't think it's, it's not much of a stretch to realize that that's exactly 
it's not much of a stretch to realize that that's exactly what that was. So yes, of course. But yes, that was horrible. It also is, I think, fair, as you mentioned, for people to point to his, he did an album called The Monsanto Years, right? It's a good, it's a good record musically. I like a lot of those songs, but he has this belief that GMOs are poisoning us and there's no scientific basis to this whatsoever. It could feed the world. It changed the world for the good. It could end hunger at some point. And he's just stubborn and wrong about this. Yeah, so he unfortunately has a history of propagating scientific misinformation. <laughs> and props to the people who who got him on that, because that, that's, that's a very damn thing. He should probably look into that and apologize for putting that out. Just in general, people who aren't scientists probably shouldn't take strong stands on science that are contrary to expert opinion, because you will end up embarrassing yourself. He has benefited in the past from taking strong stands. One example is the whole this notes for you thing, and maybe you can take us back to that. So in the mid 80s, it was really common for the biggest pop stars to be in commercials for products and to sing songs about the products. I mean, it was a whole, it was a whole new level that you didn't even see much now. It would be Madonna, it would be Eric Clapton, it would be David Bowie, it would be Tina Turner, it would be Michael Jackson, and they'd be singing about Pepsi or something. It was kind of crazy. And then in 1988, there's a song and video by Neil Young. It's called This Notes for You, where he just skewers them. I mean, it's a vicious mockery of Whitney Houston and Eric Clapton and all these people that were making that were wearing commercials. And when he gave it to MTV, they wouldn't air it. You know, they claimed that they were worried about copyright stuff, but they were really worried about about angering all of their biggest artists. Then after all this controversy, they both showed it and gave him video of the year for it. And that was the first time he and Eric Clapton were vocally on different sides of an issue. Yeah, it's super funny. If you watch the start of the video on YouTube, it's just him making so much fun of Eric Clapton in his beer commercial. It's like a shot-for-shot parody of the thing. It's hysterical. Well, you know, I had completely forgotten, but one time when I interviewed Eric Clapton in the past 10 years, somehow we got to talking about Pono and stuff, and he was making fun of Neil. He said, (laughs) after those loud concerts, there's no way on earth Neil can hear the difference between anything. Just completely mocking the entire thing, and maybe there's long-standing beef between them. I love that. Yeah, if you think back to their history, there's not a lot of times they were even together. It was the last waltz. Uh, and it was Bob Fest in 92, and that's about it. They've stayed apart for a very long time. I think it'd be worth, very briefly, you know, I think there's people who are young and are hearing about Neil Young for the first time through this, and I think he comes off as pretty cool, and I think maybe maybe they would want to get into him. Maybe they'd want to check out his music. Let's, in a couple minutes, where, it's an interesting question, where would one start with Neil Young? I'm, I mean, Harvest is the, the default answer. Yeah, I think, hardest, I, I think Harvest is the gateway drug for a lot of people. It's been 50 years exactly. I think there's something about putting that on, hearing those songs the first time. It's very accessible. It's very warm. I would say it's, it, 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 
epitomizes if you want to know what analog warmth is in sort of a recording and in, in weirdly across just even the songwriting just like warm acoustic music like that is an exact example of sort of and this actually explains why he's fought so hard to get high fidelity because he, what he wants is to be able to have that kind of warmth on the record did i see If you start with that, then I'd maybe do Rust Never Sleeps, because that's the other side of him. That's sort of the godfather of grunge, Neil. I love Zuma a real lot, but I think Rust Never Sleeps is better for a newcomer. Zuma is incredibly great. I would actually jump all the way to Ragged Glory. one of those artists who contain an infinity within his catalog. It's a bottomless pit because in the mid-70s alone, he wrote so many great songs in a short time period that they're still coming out now. It's been 50 years and there's still new songs that no one's ever heard out of that time period. And I guess So I, it's like him and Dylan are just an endless well of songs. And I guess I just wanted to get across why this move, this current move, really was in character for Neil. This is a guy who, when the world wanted him to veer right, he veered left every time. And this is why he isn't seen the way that Crosby, Stills, and Nash, who, of course, he, he played with adding the Y to them. This is why he isn't seen the way that they are. He was the one guy from the 60s who survived to the punk era and was still seen as cool. He's the one guy who became the quote-unquote godfather of grunge and was on MTV playing yeah. with Pearl Jam. It's because of this contrariness in him, which could be yeah. very frustrating to deal with as someone who dealt with him. But as soon as he establishes a sound, he just drops it because the song Heart of Gold was like the biggest single of 1972. It was an enormous, enormous hit. And his follow-up was a live album that sounded nothing like it. And then Tonight's the Night, which was even more, which was even less like, you know, he has always veered away from a working formula, which is so rare. Famously, he spoke of being in the middle of the road with, with Harvest and with Heart of Gold. And he veered into the ditch. And that was a lot of what his 70s was. And by the way, those supposed ditch albums are some of the greatest music ever made. I'd like to stay yes. in the ditch forever. This is also the only guy who made such weird music in the 80s that he was sued by his own record label for essentially not sounding enough like himself, which is I yeah. think, still the only lawsuit of its kind in the entire history of the recording industry. It's absolutely incredible. And his whole 80s became about fucking with David Geffen. It was who just was insane. Yeah. Who was the head of Geffen? He makes Trans, which is almost like a Kraftwerk album at times with a vocoder where you can even hear his vocals. And then they told him to do a, quote, rock and roll record. So he made a rockabilly record just to fuck with them, like a 50s rockabilly Truly thing. And he spent a year on tour with the comb in his hair and the, the like poodle skirt backup singers. He did a whole tour and album to fuck with David Geffen. And then he made a country record. And then he made a blues record. This is all in a pretty short time period. He really is a singular figure in music history. And it shows that if you conduct yourself with enough integrity decade after decade, you can be in your 70s and, and make an impact like this, which says a lot. 
But I, I do wish that it, you know, didn't get a thing where someone makes a political statement that people don't like and suddenly they have to pretend they never liked him. That, that, that bums me out. It's silly. I saw one conservative, I think a congressman, he tweeted out that Kid Rock's music is a lot better than Neil Young's music. And even a lot of right-wing pundits, they responded and just said, look, dude, that, that's fucking crazy. Like, <laughs> I like Kid Rock's politics, yeah. right? <laughs> but that's a step too far, like, even for us, you know? <laughs> it's true. Eventually, I think that's, that's where that line of thinking leads you, is you end up making statements that are, you know, you end up just listening to Kid Rock. But Neil Young, you know, this is a nice capper to his legacy. I'm sure he must be wondering why this has gotten roughly 400,000 times the attention that any of his albums have gotten in the last decade. It's sort of a bummer as a super hardcore fan to see this the thing that they care about when he goes and when he goes on tour and plays like the best concerts I've ever seen in my life and nobody cares. I'm not sure even I expected it seemed like a big deal to me. Right-wing social media might have ironically helped big, build this into a bigger deal than it would have been because they got so mad about it. And the more they screamed that he's totally irrelevant and no one knows who it was, it just it just brought it up. They were, they were it, quote, tweeting the Rolling Stone article hundreds of times saying yeah. how irrelevant and how stupid Neil Young is. I think that's what happened. Yeah, I think that's true. But I guess what I would say is someone made a brilliant point, which is that... If Neil Young wants to reduce Joe Rogan's reach, he actually should encourage him to stay on Spotify. Because before Spotify paid him for an exclusive deal, he was open to everyone. Now you can have a free Spotify account, but you do have to have a Spotify account. So it, it greatly reduced his reach. So actually, actually, Neil should be totally pro Joe Rogan on Spotify. And in fact, yeah. just encourage him to possibly go on a smaller platform, but but he should not want him deplatformed. Yeah, I don't think he's seen the chessboard here uh, with that many pieces in advance, but he should encourage him to like be on Quibi or something. Yeah. <laughs> and now, you know, CD sales were up last year. A lot of it was because, almost all of it was because of Adele Taylor Swift and BTS. But nonetheless, weirdly, CD sales were up after many, many years of decline. Now, our friend Rob Sheffield is a big CD fan. He wrote an article praising the CD for RollingStone.com that a lot of people liked. I liked it very much, but deeply disagreed with it. I thought it'd be fun to talk to Rob and Brittany about our old friend, the compact disc. Rob, what is it that you love about CDs? There's so much to love about CDs. Physical media is up for music across the board. You know, vinyl boomed much more than CDs did last year. CDs are are still far behind vinyl. It's obviously not sustainable because of the the vinyl shortage, the PVC shortage, the Suez Canal. A, A lot of people are releasing an album, then waiting 18 months to two years to release their album because it's not cost effective to release it without vinyl. And just the backlog for vinyl is so insane. So I think the love that people are are finding and, and the love that is growing for physical music and physical media, I think it's long overdue and I think it's happening. And I think CDs are a crucial part of it. They're, you know, I love all music formats. I love tapes. I love records. But CDs are something. Hmm. I, I thought you loved tapes more. I, I, I do. It's like choosing favorite kinds of pasta or something like that. But, you know. Uh, you have your favorites, but you love them all. I love I love cassette tapes. That's probably what I listen to most. Not I think of it. You know, CDs. They had a, a a role in music history. That the time when CDs were the dominant format was also the time that. 
people bought the most music. And you can't really argue that's a coincidence, or at least I wouldn't argue that's a coincidence. CDs are very good for music. That requires you to invest some time and concentrate. You can't click away from it when you get distracted. It's much longer than a side of vinyl. You know, vinyl, you're getting up to change sides every every 20 minutes. The old joke about how listening to vinyl is, it's like diapers. You have to keep changing it and changing it every few minutes. And with CDs, you look at the impact of CDs on music history, they, they're very, very kind to music that takes time and concentration. And that's something CDs are particularly excellent for. Brittany, when was the last time you played a CD? I think the last time I played a CD was last holiday season. I wasn't home for this holiday season, but yeah, the last one I was home for, I was playing CDs. I have hundreds of CDs that I bought <laughs> over the course of my childhood and teen years and in college. I was very devoted to buying CDs. I did not have cassette tapes. They were kind of like on the out by the time that I was forming my own music taste and I didn't have any vinyl records until like I was like 25. The CDs stayed in my childhood home. My mom has moved from there. She found the CD case. I'd lost it for many years. It is now back in my possession. And I also still have all the jewel cases. So it's undetermined if I'm just bringing the the giant binder with me or the jewel cases, but something will be relocated to New York soon. (laughs) Just in time for the CD comeback. (laughs) I can now have all my, now that's what I call music, CDs. It's interesting when when Rob writes about it or talks about it, I can almost, I I start to see his side, but I I hate CDs. Never liked them, and he he gets at it in one paragraph of his story. There was a lot about the physicality of the format that was extremely annoying. I found personally that they scratched really easily. I know that some people, that never was a problem for them. I, I found that, and when it scratched, it didn't scratch like vinyl where, you know, there was a scratch, but you maybe could clean it or maybe it would just skip in one place. It would ruin the CD. And that happened pretty frequently. I hated the thing, the little notch that you put the CD in when, in, when it was a plastic jewel box and that little notchy thing that you attach the CD to. I would find those things broke all the time. I hated that too. Perhaps I did not treat them with the care and respect they deserved, but that was <laughs> a thing that, that, that drove me insane. I hated that portable CD player skips so much even if the CD wasn't scratched. I, I certainly listened to a ton of music on CD like everyone else who was alive, but I, I just I just never warmed to the format. And then the, the other thing I would say is that CDs aren't really a format, right? They're actually just a shell for a file that you can access in different ways. You can, when you stream music in CD quality as you can do on Apple Music and on Tidal, you're getting something that is basically on a bit by bit level identical to a CD. And so that's the thing. I feel like it's sort of like the file on the CD has to sort of just break through of its physical form. You still have it, but it doesn't need to be encased in that little silver thing. I, I had pre-iPod MP3 players. <laughs> that's how eager I was to get on it. I had these horrible pre-iPod MP3 players just trying to break free of the CD. I guess, Bernie, do you see, is, is there a movement of a foot to, I do see on TikTok a thing where kids will be like, my aunt gave me her CDs and it would be the kids who are into the 90s, Smashing Pumpkins and Nirvana Unplugged, just sort of the, the 90s starter kit. And they really treasure that. Is that a thing where people are using that and also finding that a way to cherish the music more, as Rob suggests, pay more attention yeah, to I it? Mean- I think, of course, there's like such an early aughts nostalgia, right? And CDs are so tied to that. Like, you know, there there is that that very specific era. Um, 
But I can see why it appeals to both artists and fans right now. I think fans, you know, they in the effort to get their artists to number one, which is very important to like certain sects of a lot of fandoms, a lot of big fandoms, like they realize that that is still a pretty weighted part of how um, getting to number one is calculated. And more and more artists are now using CDs as a way to give bonus content. There are three bonus tracks on the Adele album that are not on any streaming services that you cannot listen to unless someone has pulled it or put it on YouTube. There are tracks that are still not available. There were tracks on physical versions of Folklore and Evermore that were not available unless you bought the physical version of of those albums. And I think that really matters. I think artists really desire to make something that's really cohesive and make an album. And a CD is a really great way to listen to it. You can just really sit through it. It takes a lot of effort to skip and my favorite part was like the liner notes on a CD like Taylor very famously did a lot of little Easter eggs in the liner notes of CDs where the lyrics and you know they kind of built up certain things or had certain messages attached to each song I miss like hidden tracks I hope that makes it come back hidden tracks on a on a Mm -hmm. CD it just doesn't hit the same on digital I like the surprise of not knowing how long I have to wait until there's like a random track at the end of it and I you know I think there's a lot of experiences that more and more artists, I think, are craving to have from their albums that CDs can really offer. And I can see that becoming a very appealing way of, of you know, inviting listeners in. And again, like you said, like it is meant to be digital. You can easily transfer that to your computer. That in-between era of getting CDs and ripping them is something we don't think about as much anymore. Like just the, <laughs> the, the, that awkward stepping stone era. And it is true, as Rob pointed out, Early on, MP3s sounded terrible. They were people were doing it at at 128, which, you know, introduced all sorts of horrendous artifacts. I have a theory that that helped push down the commercial peak of rock bands because nothing sounded worse in low bitrate MP3s than than rock bands because it, it did horrible things to the cymbals. And to ride cymbals and to hi-hats, they sounded, like if there's a drummer hitting it, it sounded like actual garbage. And admittedly, some of the mainstream rock circa 2003 sounded like garbage anyway. The pristine sonics of, you know, Hoobastank or whatever were, were, was not, were probably not worth much anyway. But I, I do Let's think... Let's not break yeah, Hoobastank I, I do think... This. Sorry, Rob put Hoobastank. <laughs> I once, as I was saying, I once interviewed a Hoobastank and a very delightful person they were. I apologize to Hoobastank. They were, Literally you know, just, nobody is criticizing Hoobastank. Yeah. Oh, that, they are beyond criticism. So I, I do think there were weird... There's weird consequences and there's things we haven't figured out. I, I do... It should be noted that, you know, like, for example, Neil Young never really seemed to realize that mp3s and streaming moved way beyond the the early mp3s and they sounded a million times better and eventually it got to you know what what you were buying eventually even before streaming on the itunes store sounded pretty good it may not have sounded as good as an uncompressed cd but it sounded pretty good but there, there were a few years there where people got used to listening to music that sounded like pure garbage there's no doubt about it but rob you were gonna say something no it's just the, the uh, well probably about hoobastank just because you know <laughs> the, the last the last time you know cd sales went up it was the hoobastank era, which was also, you know, the Twista era and the Ashley Simpson era. It was 2004. And for CDs, you know, as Britney's put it just so, so eloquently, you know, CDs are full of surprises. You know, there's, you know, hmm, I wonder why the last track is 17 minutes long when it seems to be over after three minutes. Of course, the, the CD booklets, you know, some artists, if you're streaming a Missy Elliott CD, you're getting, you know, half the experience because a, a Missy Elliott CD came with, you know, a little book. Her thank yous alone were worth the price of the album. And 
just in general physical media i mean even when you're streaming you're listening it's still physical media you're listening on an object whether it's a phone or a laptop you know it's there's a cumbersomeness in every kind of object that you use to listen to music and cds have an efficiency that uh, i admire they have an off the grid quality that i really like i like that i'm not being tracked or counted or measured or gauged i like that i'm not being researched i not that I'm, i like that i'm not interacting with any algorithm at all it's just me and my scritty politi cd and i'm playing you know my favorite scritty politi songs over and over that's between me and scritty politi and, and the disc man Disc men tell no tales. And it's funny when you there's, there's something physically evocative about everything we're talking about, and you literally evoke this Squiddy Politi promo CD that I got God knows how many years ago that I remember feeling guilty that I didn't like it as much as people like you told me that I should. So I think, but it might have been a later a later era. So maybe I, maybe I was, I was excused. <laughs> But I, I mean, it, all that is true. I, I will say I'm hopeful about new things evolving. I've been we, in my house. We've been listening to a lot of music on the through an Apple TV connected through speakers with the, with the screen on. And what it does is it it shows the lyrics, and it ends up being a very immersive experience. And that's yeah. new. That's a really interesting pathway to music back as an immersive thing again a a communal thing too like i feel like all forms of physical media like when when i think specifically about the act of buying cds like you know people were waiting in line during this peak era during let's call it the we're just going to call it the hoobastank era i'm no longer calling it the early 2000s (laughs) it is now (laughs) the the hoobastank years amen and during that era, you know, the the act of waiting in line of going to like Tower Records, even just like going to like a Target and like being in the CD section, like places where you can just you can literally buy CDs next to like Wet and Wild lip gloss. Like it was just kind of like you can do all of this at once. And I mean, I remember just like the absolute fervor of trying to to buy No Strings Attached the week that it came out. Like it was such a big deal to get it that very first week and to have it and to own it and to like literally be able to bring it to school the next day, um, you know, and, and talk with your classmates about it and, you know, mix CDs, the, the physicality of that, the like, I think, you know, there's such a process of decorating the act. You can decorate a blank CD and you can like put markers on it and like make it beautiful and make it look the way you want to for whoever you're giving it to. It's kind of nice to be like, we're exchanging CDs. I'm physically giving you this CD and of course, that's why vinyl, which is the the missing part of this, I think that's why vinyl has become such a big deal for people. Mm-hmm. I, I want to bring it back to the Instinct No Strings Attached thing because that was the peak of the CD era. Peak, and, that was peak CD. That was yes. they they sold two point four million in, in one week, mm-hmm. which is the most CDs. I mean, that is the pinnacle of CDdom. And I, I was I was at an in store. I'm looking at an MTV News article I wrote on uh, March twenty first. 2000, when InSync did a, a an in-store appearance at the Virgin Megastore across the street from the MTV studios. And there were just fans lined up outside on barricades, screaming for each member, screaming a lot more for Justin than the other members, a lot less for Lance, apparently. And I do miss that. I miss the in-stores. I miss, at the time, I also saw like Eminem do a similar in-store like that same year. And... Also, just that feeling when you walked into a Virgin Megastore s- surrounded by the physical manifestations of, I mean, you can go to a record store, but it was like these places were huge with billions of CDs everywhere. Just the, 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 
the lifeblood of a thriving physical media industry. And, you know, it's, it, of, course, of course, Napster already existed at that point, at that, at that in-sync moment, and it was kind of looming over it. And it, and it was like a, a, a building tidal wave that splashed over it. Waiting in line for a CD <laughs> at, at midnight. I mean, that's just like such a, that was such a fun thing to do. Like that was like so much, that was just such a great, joyful experience. Just also like, the cheesy ploys developed to actually sell you these particular physical objects. Remember the Katy Perry album that you could buy with a pizza? If you ordered a pizza from a certain (laughs) nationwide pizza chain and you just added a few extra bucks, they would deliver the Katy Perry CD with your pizza. Like stuff like that. I love stuff like that, you know? And people are still ordering pizzas, you know, like who who wouldn't throw in an extra couple bucks to get, you know, a, a, a CD with your pizza to listen to. And that's our show for today. Rolling Stone Music Now will be back next week. We're always on Sirius XM's volume channel 106, but we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Yes, that includes Spotify and Apple Podcasts and many other places. And do leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts if you can. That's always appreciated. But as always, thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.